Please pray with me. Lord, we want to understand your word, and we need your help to do that. So we ask that you would give us fresh insight into your word this morning, and that you would empower us to live it out. We ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Last summer, my brother and I visited one of the strangest places on earth, the Bonneville Salt Flats. The Bonneville Salt Flats are on the Utah-Nevada border. You've seen them in in car commercials probably. But in many of the car commercials, they they put these computer-animated roads on there. There's no roads, just miles and miles of white salt. Everywhere you look, the ground is salt. And some places five feet thick. So, on the in-flight magazine flying out to Colorado to meet my brother, I open it up, and there's this great article about Speed Week happening there the week we're going to be a few hours away. Speed Week's this, this time one week a year when motorcycle racers and car racers from across the world gather at the salt flats to try and break land speed records. So my brother and I said, let's do it. So we got there. There were thunderous machines going three, four hundred miles an hour. But the most interesting thing was when we walked away from the races. We went on this walk towards a, a low-line mountain ridge. And when we got far enough from the, the cars that there were just kind of this tiny glimmer on the desert horizon, you couldn't hear a thing except the wind. There were no insects, no birds, no signs of life. The only thing you could hear was the wind. It's one of those places where you really felt like an explorer, and I wanted to explore. I wanted to see what was over that mountain ridge. My brother wasn't so thrilled about that. I thought we could make it there in half an hour easy. He thought it would take an hour to an hour and a half one way. So we made a deal. I said, okay. Let's walk for a half hour. If we don't make it, we'll turn back. So we started out. Fifteen minutes in, still a really long ways away. But I wanted to see it, so I started running. After ten minutes of running, I was tired, and it was still a really long ways away. I never found out what was on the other side of that ridge. But here's our question this morning. How do you live when you can't see over the ridge? How do you live when you don't know what's coming next? Seems to me there's two things you can do. One is to do what I did and try and run faster, try and see harder to see over the ridge. That's one way. But I'd like to suggest that there's another way. That way is describing the God, is trusting the God, described in Psalm 147. If you want to follow along, please open to your bulletin. It's page 4 or 5 where the psalm is. And here's what Psalm 147 describes. It describes a God who knows what's on the other side of the ridge. A God who names all the stars. And a God whose economy does not make sense, but is still worth investing in. We'll look at each of these three things. 
First, Psalm 147 describes a God who knows what's on the other side of the ridge. Verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. There is no limit to his wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. That point is illustrated in verse 4 of the psalm. He counts the number of the stars and calls them by their names. Other translations read, he gives all of them their names. There's an astronomer at Yale who recently put out a new estimate of how many stars are in the universe. He estimates there are 300 sextillion stars in the universe. That's 300 with 21 zeros added on. The Milky Way alone contains somewhere between two and 400 billion stars. And one scholar estimates that to count the stars in the Milky Way would take one person about 3,000 years. He counts the numbers of the stars and gives all of them their names. There is no limit to his wisdom. There's a number of times in the Bible when God says to his people, look up at the stars. And he does that to make a point about his faithfulness. He encourages people to to count the stars and they're not able to because there's so many. And he says, that's how many your descendants will be. But that's not what God is doing here. He tells his people to look at the stars and he says that he can count all them and has named all them and knows all their names. Why does he say that? Because the Babylonians were astrologers. They placed their faith in the stars for determining the future. They would read the stars in their star charts and that's how they would predict the future. Now, God's people weren't astrologers and they weren't Babylonians. But as verse 2 shows us, they were just coming out of exile in Babylon. So God is saying, the powerful people have their star charts. But I am the one who really knows the stars. I am the one who has the power over the stars. Astrology isn't as prevalent today as it was thousands of years ago, but it's still around. Many people still read their horoscopes in the newspaper. And you may not read horoscopes, but I bet there are other charts you use to try and predict the future. Financial analysts use balance sheets and and fancy graphs with economic data to try and predict which way the stock market will go. Lawyers use legal precedent and their knowledge of a certain judge to try and predict how a case will be ruled. Doctors use x-rays. Realtors use historical home prices to try and predict how much a house will sell for. We use our, our bank accounts, our retirement accounts to try and predict what our future will be like. As good as those things may be, And it's as necessary as they may be for some of our occupations. They are all imperfect. What charts do you use to try and predict the future? Whatever they are, God is telling us today, 
you can come up with all kinds of ways to try and predict the future, to have that knowledge and wisdom. But God says to us, I don't need to strive for that. There is no limit to my power and my wisdom. Tonight at the Super Bowl, the limit to our knowledge and wisdom will be on full display. Tonight, there will be two noteworthy quarterbacks at the Super Bowl. One was drafted with high expectations. He was the top pick, the first pick of the first round. One was drafted with very low expectations. He was the 199th pick in the sixth round. The first round pick soared his rookie year. He threw for almost 4,000 yards, which for a rookie is unheard of. The 199th pick rode the bench. He was the fourth-string quarterback, and when he finally got in, his entire season numbers, he completed one of three passes for six yards. That fourth-string quarterback tonight is competing for his fourth Super Bowl championship. Tom Brady. Every single team in the NFL passed five times on picking him. The first-round pick will not be playing. His name is Peyton Manning, and he'll be watching from a skybox as his brother Eli competes against Tom Brady. Peyton Manning has won a Super Bowl, but he'll probably never play football again. His young life has fulfilled what Isaiah said in chapter 40. Even youth will faint and grow weary, and the young will fall exhausted. Peyton got beaten up and had to have neck surgeries that he's never fully recovered from. His nerves haven't healed. His arm strength isn't back. His young 35-year-old body has betrayed him. Today's Super Bowl will be a reminder of many things. But as you watch it today, let it be a reminder to you of how unpredictable the future is of how limited our knowledge and wisdom is. And when Tom Brady scores his first touchdown or at a commercial break, think to yourself or share those amazing stats with somebody else. But be reminded that our knowledge and our wisdom is so limited. So if that's the case, how do we move forward and live with any sense of hope? We trust a God who can see over the ridge. We trust a God who has named all the stars. And we trust God's economic system, even though it does not make sense. Here's what I mean. When God chooses to build something, he does not pick the raw materials we would. As verse 11 of our psalm says, He is not impressed by the might of a horse, He has no pleasure in the strength of a man. I am impressed with Tom Brady's football skills. But God isn't. If we were building a company or a football team or a church, we would look for the best, the most highly qualified, the strongest candidates. But God takes a different approach. Here's how 1 Corinthians describes how God builds. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God takes these raw materials that no one should be able to use, but he produces amazing returns with them. In the near future, you'll be able to buy part of Facebook if you want. You'll be able to invest in Facebook. It's going public, going to be listed on the stock exchange. It isn't every day you get to invest in a given company. Some go public, some stay private. It would have been awesome to be one of the first investors in Apple or Walmart, but not everyone has that opportunity. But God always lets us invest with him. It doesn't mean that we'll become rich, but what it does mean is that we have a business partner who knows what's on the other side of the ridge. And he may not always tell us what's on the other side, but he'll make sure that we get there. This God who is unsurpassed in wisdom and power is also unsurpassed in faithfulness and love. And he marshals all those resources in the service of one group of people. That group of people is described in verse 12. The Lord has pleasure in those who fear him, in those who await his gracious favor. These are the people who invest in God's economic model. The way we invest is by fearing him and awaiting his gracious favor. But those are fancy words. What does that mean? It means we acknowledge him as the one who can see over the ridge, who sees what's in the future so much better than we'll ever be able to. And it means we acknowledge that to him and give him the respect he deserves. Sometimes when people read the fear of the Lord in the Bible, they think it's about like being scared or afraid of God. It's about reverential respect and awe. And to wait for God's gracious favor means that we value the things he values. It's an act of waiting, a waiting where we keep investing in God's ways. We keep doing things his way, even when we don't see returns or results overnight. We keep placing our trust in his economic model, waiting for him to take these raw materials and waiting for him to produce the results. That's what it means, but how do we do it? I see three habits in Psalm 147 that will help us do it. First, we internalize God's ways into our being. We remind ourselves of God's ways and meditate on them by meditating on passages like Psalm 147 and 1 Corinthians 1. We chew on them and remind ourselves of God's ways. The second thing we do is We act. We invest in God's economic engine by seeking first his kingdom, by actively waiting on him, waiting for his gracious favor. Sometimes there's a company that's doing amazing, but nobody recognizes it. Their stock may be really undervalued, but you know that it's doing fantastic. And If somebody who believes in a company and is invested in it, even though the rest of the world may not recognize its value, if they believe in that company, they keep investing in it. 
And they keep investing in it, and they keep investing in it. Because they know that one day, out of nowhere, the stock will pop, and everyone will recognize its true value. And that's what it's like to wait on the Lord. Sometimes God's ways look really undervalued. You know, they they don't make sense. You feel like you're throwing your, your life, your resources, your time, your energy away. But waiting on the Lord means we have the faith and keep investing and keep plugging away. And one day, the true value of that investment will be plain for all to see. So that's the second action. We internalize God's ways. We wait on the Lord by investing in his ways. And third, we worship. There's a number of times in the psalm when the psalm writer seems to interrupt himself, and he just breaks into worship. There's times when he, it seems he interrupts his writing to exhort us, his readers, to break into worship. But what if those things aren't interruptions? What if it's not an interruption? What if that is one of the foundational pieces of investing in God's ways? Some of you, as it was for me, may not find it very natural to, to worship outside of a corporate worship setting, to worship outside God's walls. But as I read the Bible, it's striking how often transformation happens in corporate worship and in private worship. And it seems to me that if we want to model our lives on Psalm 147, part of that will be finding ways that we can worship outside these walls. You know, for some, that may be praising God silently praying by yourself somewhere during the day. For others, maybe downloading a a worship album from iTunes and and listening to that as you drive around. But whatever it is, it's important for all of us to find ways to worship that are outside this gathering. As we wrap up, I have two questions for you. First, are you among the group of people described in verse 12? By walking through the doors of a church this morning, you automatically placed yourselves in a minority group in the Pittsburgh area. Most people don't go to church on a Sunday morning. But just because we walk through these doors does not mean that we are internalizing God's values, does not mean that we are investing in God's ways, that we're awaiting his gracious favor. I wonder if we had a You know, if we had a scale with a needle on it, and and one side was not trusting God very much, not investing in his ways, and and the other side was fully invested, where on that scale would you be today? And what's holding you back from investing, trusting more? And here's the second question. What's one thing that you can do today to honor God, to show your fear of the Lord? to invest in his ways. What's one thing you can do today, even if it's a simple prayer? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you can see over the ridge. Thank you that we have someone we can trust who knows the future, who has so much more wisdom and power and authority than we will ever have. I pray that you would Teach us more and more to invest in your ways and to await your gracious favor. And I pray that you would show each of us
something that we can do this day, something that we can do this week to invest in your ways, to worship you. We lift our lives up to you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.